If you have your scriptures, your, your copy of God's word, let me invite you to take a hold of that and open with me to 1 Timothy. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to gift you with one. We've got some gospel transformation Bibles in the back. ESV Bibles, we'd love to gift you with a copy of God's word. If you don't own one, please take one as our gift to you. We believe the Bible is a great gift from God to us. And it's a joy to explore it, to study it, to consider it each week. Last week, we began a new study through Paul's first letter to Timothy. And we explored the first 11 verses of chapter one. And we saw that the apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to encourage him, to to call him to persevere in the gospel. There were some false teachers and some teachings arising in the church uh, where there was, they were promoting speculation on myths and genealogies. It wasn't leading to a life of godliness. It wasn't the stewardship of God that is through faith. It was promoting speculation, vain discussion. And Paul says, don't correct those false teachers. I urge you, don't, don't let those kind of teaching continue on. And he wrote this letter so that the church would know how to act and to behave in the household of God. So that's why we kind of titled this study, The Household of God. And Paul begins the letter by reminding Timothy to stay in Ephesus. He said, remain in Ephesus and charge certain peoples not to teach any contrary doctrine, different teaching, teaching that's, that's contrary to the truth. And he says, the aim, the purpose of my instruction is love. That's the goal. That's the, the purpose of why he's instructing Timothy along these lines. And it says, it's a love that comes from a pure faith, a good, a pu- excuse me, pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. I've, I've, I've mixed those up in my mind. And he says, some have wandered from these. They swerved into vain discussion. And Paul doesn't want any other teaching taught in the church that doesn't accord with the gospel of Jesus, that doesn't accord with the grace of Jesus. And he talks about that he has been entrusted with this glorious gospel of grace from the blessed God. And the section of the letter we're looking at this morning is a continuation of that. It's almost as if Paul, as he's talking about, I've been entrusted with this gospel, talks about how the gospel has been at work in his life. He's going to give a a concise kind of summary of what the gospel is. He's going to respond to that gospel, and then he's going to encourage Timothy to continue in it, right? So those are kind of some of the four things we'll see Paul do in this section this morning, verses 12 through 20. This gospel message, the the message about the person and work of Jesus The gospel simply means good news. It's the good news about Jesus and what he's done. And Paul doesn't want Timothy to to move on from this. He wants Timothy to focus on this. And and we think as a church that, that growth in the Christian faith is about growth in the gospel. In other words, you develop and mature as a Christian, not through uh, simply just gritting it out in hard work, but by coming, coming more and more to be gripped by this gospel of grace so that its implications are worked out in your very life. So the, the ways in which you have been forgiven and loved is, is changing you to be a person who's growing in someone who is willing to forgive and to love. Right? We want the gospel to be working in our life and flowing through us as a church. Right? And, and throughout the New Testament, you see Paul, the Apostle Paul, calling the churches to live a life that is in accordance. It's in line. It's living out of this gospel. For example, when he corrects Peter, the Apostle Peter, he admonishes him and, and tells him that his life is not in accordance with the gospel. It's out of step with the gospel. Certain translations say, when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. 
In other words, you continue in the gospel and you deviate from the gospel, you can fall into a kind of moralism, legalism, or a kind of licentiousness, a kind of acceptance without any kind of truth or conformity to God's word and his will. And the gospel, I think, is the anthem of the Christian faith. The gospel is, is what is to characterize, and the gospel identifies Christians as Christians. We believe in this gospel message. It, it's, it typifies the movement of Jesus. It typifies the culture of Christ. It calls for responses of praise and gladness. And you know, starting in, in 1924, national anthems were, were sung, or uh, the melody was played when, during the Olympic Games when, during the awarding ceremonies, the, the medal ceremonies. And it seems it was a couple of years before that in 1918, if you can believe, in the World Series that some attribute this tradition in, in baseball games. So, you, you know, you might go to T-Mobile Park tomorrow, or I don't know when their next home game is. I don't follow them that much. <laughs> but uh, if you go to T-Mobile Park, you'll know that there's usually someone from the community, some, some hopefully good singer, <laughs> who they will have, who will sing the national anthem. And the national anthem, we know, describes the the, the fact that our flag was still there, that it was that there was a, a vision, a, a picture that this a man had over Baltimore Harbor in 1812. And they were singing about it. They were hearing, you see the flag of, of America standing victorious. And of course, when we sing the national anthem, there's always, there's always a line at the end where there's cheering and, and shouting, and it kind of typifies what is America about? What do we want to be about? You guys know the line? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Right? That's where people whistle and shout and praise and cheer during that, during that line. And I think 1 Timothy 1.15 would be a great candidate for the Christian anthem. Describes what the gospel message is, what we're about, what we want to be identified by. This is what Paul writes, 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's our anthem. That's our message. Christ Jesus came into the earth to save sinners into the world. And Paul has just mentioned chapter one, verse 11, that he's been entrusted with this gospel. And like I said, he's going to take some time now to describe how the gospel has been at work in his life. He's going to share his story or his testimony of grace. He writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he's told Timothy, I've been entrusted with this gospel, and immediately he thanks Jesus. I thank Jesus that Jesus has given Paul strength to do ministry. He has appointed him to the service of Christ. He was judged. He was considered faithful. Now, this is an act of God's grace in the gospel where those who are faithless are considered faithful by faith. By grace, God considers the ungodly worthy of service in him. Paul says, I thank Jesus for this. And he's marveling that he's been considered faithful in spite of all the ways he's been unfaithful and wicked and unbelieving. He says there, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an opponent. Before Paul was Paul, he was, he was named Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of the church. He hated the way of Jesus. He wanted to squash this movement of Jesus. He thought people in the Jesus movement were blasphemers, lawless. He thought these Christians were unfaithful. But Paul says, I received 
mercy, and the grace of Jesus overflowed for me, along with faith and love that are in Jesus. His life was totally, radically transformed and changed. He went from a guy who was trying to squash the church to encourage the church, to share the gospel message that he was trying to destroy. He went to spread it. And we have so, so many of the New Testament letters are attributed to Paul, this, this man who was formerly a persecutor and a blasphemer. And Paul is thanking Jesus because this is an act of grace. The grace of God overflowed for me in my life. And he says, <laughs> this kind of, it, it puzzled me when I first heard it. Maybe you're thinking the same as you hear it. Paul says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Yay, is right, yes. That was perfect timing. He's not saying, as I was studying that phrase this week, it, it was peculiar to me. Is Paul saying, you know, because I was ignorant, then I received mercy. As if his ignorance is kind of meriting the mercy, deserving of mercy. It's not what Paul's saying. He's, he's not saying that his ignorance is a pass for blasphemy. <laughs> This, the purpose of this phrase is to illustrate and prove that salvation is a gracious act of God. That it's an undeserved act of kindness and mercy. And I, I, found, I came across a helpful quote from a guy named William Mounts in his commentary on the pastoral epistles. He writes this, Paul is making use of a common Jewish distinction between purposeful and accidental sins. Purposeful sins are severely condemned. From Numbers, it says, but the person who does anything with a high hand as opposing to sinning unwittingly reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among the people. He writes, Paul's sins, however, were not done in defiance of what he knew to be right, as were the sins of the insincere Ephesian opponents. His unbelief was fueled by his ignorance. Consequently, God in his mercy and grace chose to save Paul and not punish him. His ignorance did not give him a claim on God's mercy, but merely put him within the pale of its operation. I love the way that was written. I, I don't think I could say it better. In other words, when Paul was a blasphemer, when he was a persecutor, when he was opponent, when he was rude and disrespectful, he hadn't yet received mercy. Yet the mercy of God, the grace of God had overflowed towards him. And he's contrasting himself with these false teachers. These false teachers who are claiming they believe in Jesus that they've been transformed by Jesus, yet their very teaching and their actions is, is undercutting the very message that they, they claim to profess. They live as opponents of sound teaching. And Paul's saying, when I was opponent of Jesus, I was doing so and I was hurting the church. I had not yet professed faith. I was living in ignorance. And yet these false teachers are confessing to follow Jesus, but they're still acting and conducting in such a way that actually they oppose the gospel and they're, they're close to being cut off from the mercy of God if they continue down this path. Paul writes, the grace of Jesus overflowed, it abounded beyond, it was in great excess for Paul. And this is what set Paul and, and true ministers of the gospel apart from teachers of the law. This transformative dynamic called grace. The faith and love that are in Jesus that come along with this grace. Paul seems to be talking about the fact here that the faith and love that are in Jesus are gifts of grace. Faith and love that comes from Jesus, they're found in Jesus, is a generous gift. It's by the sheer grace of God alone. So the reason that if you are a Christian, you have faith and love Jesus is because of God's grace. So this leads Paul to thank Jesus. I'm not going to take credit for this. 
I was an opponent and blasphemer of the Lord, and yet he had mercy on me. His grace overflowed towards me. Along those came faith and love. This is what he is. It leads him. He's thanking God. He's describing the grace and mercy that he's received, and it leads him to state this concise, clear summary of the gospel message. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, it's sure. You can bank on this statement. It's deserving of full, entire acceptance to the full quantity or extent. It's complete. You can approve of this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. Christ Jesus, the word Christ coming from the Greek meaning anointed one. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this is the word that's used, Christos, Christ, to translate the word Messiah. Paul is saying Messiah Jesus, right? Messiah Jesus, this title Jesus, he came into the world. He entered humanity. He came down into the world to save sinners. When an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and was encouraging Joseph, hey, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This is what the angel tells Joseph, Matthew 121. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus grows up to live a life in which he actually befriends sinners. He's called a friend of sinners. He's compassionate and gracious towards sinners. And one day there was a, a tax collector named Levi and he made this great feast for Jesus. And there was a whole company of other tax collectors there. And there were also some Pharisees and religious leaders who were there. And they were grumbling and they were complaining and they were asking Jesus, why do you, why do you eat with sinners and, and tax collectors? Why do you eat and drink with these kind of people? And Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician. I used to quote this verse to my mom when she told me to go to the doctor. <laughs> those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are prideful, those who are self-righteous, those who are righteous in their own eyes, they don't see a need for Jesus. And this is actually, I think, the sin beneath the sin. It's the underlying belief of unbelief that I don't need anyone else. I don't need Jesus. I'm righteous on my own. Might not use that language or that terminology, but this is at the heart of it. I'm not a sinner. I'm not in need of healing. I don't need him. This is at the heart of rejection of Jesus. Jesus says, I've come to save sinners. This saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. Then Paul continues in his story in verse 16 and says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, I'm the greatest sinner, he's saying. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, look, if I can be saved, anyone can be saved. The foremost sinner, he can be saved. The opponent of the church, the one who murdered Christians, one who imprisoned Christians, if I can be saved, anyone can be saved because of grace. The reason that Paul received mercy was not because he was better, not because he was worse. Paul says there that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. Paul is a prime example of the patience of God, the mercy of God. So that when sinners and, and people realize, they look at Paul and they say, this guy can be saved. They too can believe and find life in Jesus. And it could be that Paul was sharing this with Timothy to encourage him to take heart. Like, don't stop preaching the gospel because, man, if I can be saved, anyone can be saved. So continue in it. Don't move on from this. 
Paul might be saying this to Timothy to don't dismiss those who are even far from God. Those, those false teachers, don't even dismiss them like, oh, they're irredeemable. Forget them. Let's move on to some other people. Paul's saying, consider and remember the testimony of grace in my life. So we've seen Paul describe here. He's seen the power of the gospel. We've, he's, he's given us a clear and concise summary of the gospel message. And now we see Paul's response to this grace, to this gospel in his life. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages... This is like a prayer, a praise to the king of the angels, immortal, immortal, sorry guys, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's, it's as if Paul is so moved as he considers the grace of God in his life, the story of God working in his life, the mercy and the patience that God showed in his life that he just can't help it. He's going to praise Jesus. He's going to say to the king, be glory and honor forever and ever. It's like it just wells up inside it, bursts out of him. Paul couldn't help but praise God as he considers the grace and the mercy, and he's praising, he is exalting this king. Apparently, this verse here, 1 Timothy 1.17, is, is the verse that brought a man named Jonathan Edwards to, to faith. Jonathan Edwards was a great American preacher, a theologian, a writer back in the 1700s. He's considered to be one of America's uh, the sharpest theological minds that we've had in America. He's considered to be one of uh, the most important theolo theologians in America. And he wrote about this verse. It was this verse that brought him to Christ. He said, I had the sense of joy of the divine being and I prayed to God that I might enjoy him. That's how the Lord used this verse in his life. I had a sense of the glory of the divine being and I prayed to God that I might enjoy him. It is amazing grace that this king of the ages, this immortal, invisible, only God, stooped down to earth to save sinners like you and me. That he is this kind of personal God, the king of the ages, pursuing you, reaching out to you, calling you to faith. He intervenes. He relates personally. So Paul has recalled the story of God's grace in his life. He's given us a summary of the gospel. He's responded to that gospel message. And now he turns to Timothy and calls him to press on and continue in this gospel. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their faith, made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. Now that sounds super intense, doesn't it? We don't use that kind of language, do we? <laughs> we'll get to that. But Paul, is, he's writing, he's giving you this charge, he's writing the instructions so that, look at that, so that you may wage the good warfare. Other translations say, you might call him to fight the good fight. Fight the battle well. He's calling Timothy to remember previous events in such a way that would encourage him forward to fight with the gospel and for the gospel. And he says there, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. And we're not exactly told what these prophecies were. We're given an example maybe of what this could have looked like from Acts 13. In Acts 13, verse 1, we are told that now in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, and there's a list of men listed there, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. 
Then after praying and fasting, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now this might've been an example of what it could look like. Maybe this, these prophecies about Timothy were a, a prophecy that he would be set apart for this work of gospel ministry, this work of preaching and teaching in the church of Ephesus. We, we give, we're going to give a, a maybe what this looked like too at the end of Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.14. Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Maybe these council of elders saw this, this gift of leading and teaching and, and preaching in Timothy and they laid hands on him and this, was, this is what the prophecy was about. I've actually had a similar experience in my life. I remember eighth grade, I was at a little Christian school and this, my teacher, my, my English teacher, looked at me and she said, Daniel, one day you're going to be a pastor. <laughs> and I just laughed. I laughed her off. I just thought to myself, wow, you are off your rocker, woman. Because my, my plan at the time, I was only in eighth grade, my plan was either I was going to play professional baseball, that was my hope, or I was going to go to University of Washington, I, was gonna, I wanted to shoot, I'm competitive, I wanted to be the best, and I thought the best was a brain surgeon. Like of, of all the people, brain surgeons, they feel like those guys are up there, and I wanted to be a brain surgeon. And I wanted to make a lot of money, and I wanted to you know, retire early and buy a yacht, that was my plan. And Temperament-wise, personality-wise, I, I prefer the back of the room. I like to be quiet and listen. And the idea of standing up and preaching, I still get nervous, right? It's like, no. <laughs> no one in my family is like a pastor. That's, that'd be weird. I, that's not for me. Why was I wrong? <clears throat> and these last 10 years of serving in the church and, and pastoring, through the, through the church and, and other members of the church kind of affirming, you know, they, they see a gift in me. There's been hands that have been laid on me. When I think through, when, we, when I experience dark times or, or trying times in, in pastoral ministry, those, those words have kind of fortified the call. They've been comforting to me. Through, through dark times of trial and hardship and opposition and relational conflict, God, the Lord has used some of those words to encourage me and to, to help me to, to press on and not give up, not be done with this and go sell cars. <laughs> you know, forget people, they're the worst. <laughs> I think the Apostle Paul is a similar, he wants Timothy to continue in this, even through opposition, even through false teachers. He wants him to hold the faith with a good conscience. He says, remember the, remember the prophecies in accordance with the prophecies about you. And he lists out two, two people that haven't done this. They haven't hold, held to the faith with a good conscience. Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says this phrase, quote, handed over to Satan. Seems pretty intense to us. And certainly there's a level of Paul's apostolic authority that he can, he can say this, and I feel like it would be weird for us to do. <laughs> but Paul uses this phrase as a, as a way to talk about removing someone from the church. So there's actually another time in which Paul uses this exact same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth and he's addressing a problem in, in the church. And he's saying, you guys are tolerating kind of sexual immorality that people outside the church don't even tolerate. Incest. You're not dealing with this. <laughs> what, what is going on? And he says, uh, so when you assemble together in the power of Jesus is present, he writes, quote, hand this man over to Satan. So removing him from the church. But he says there, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And, and what does Paul say there at the end of, of verse 20? 
I've handed them over to Satan, not just so that they will burn forever. <laughs> See you, suckers. No, he's saying that they may not, they may learn not to blaspheme. So you see that the purpose there, the, even the purpose of this act of removing someone from a church is, is supposed to be redemptive, restorative. That they'll learn, they'll come back to the truth. It doesn't have a tone of vengeance, but of discipline. And I think this verse also shows that there's a great importance of church membership, of church fellowship, of church accountability. If, if Paul talks about handing someone over to Satan as removing someone from the church, it's not like we should take church life and fellowship and accountability lightly, right? We're not told the exact manner of what they were blaspheming, like what they were saying, but they were speaking, to blaspheme means to speak in an irreverent or impious manner. It also means to, to misrepresent. It seems like that, that might be what more they were, they were doing. They were misrepresenting Jesus. These evil statements these false teachers were making were claiming to speak the truth, yet failing to actually reflect the heart of the Christian faith or the heart of Jesus. And to misrepresent the gospel, I think, is to blaspheme. So to preach a message other than Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to preach a kind of message that is grace plus, is blasphemy. Jesus plus, I think it's blasphemy. It's, it's misrepresenting the truth. So in this section of 1 Timothy that we've been exploring, we've seen Paul describe uh, the effect and his personal story, his testimony of God's grace in his life. We've seen him give a summary of the gospel. We've seen him respond to that gospel in praise, and we've seen him call Timothy to continue in this gospel message. And I'd like to conclude this the sermon this morning by considering how can we apply these principles? How can we apply these principles for an increase in, in responding to the gospel message like Paul did? Praise and honor and joy and overflowing thanksgiving, thanking Jesus for what he's done. I'd like to look again at verse 15. When Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I don't think this is a kind of humble brag from Paul. Like I'm, I'm the worst sinner. But Paul is an example of seemingly a guy who was impossibly redeemable. One pastor writes, he was a religious predator whose hands were stained with the blood of Christians. He was a self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on a full-scale inquisition. He was, no one is beyond, he's writing this saying, no one is beyond the grace and mercy of God. But I think there's also a sense in which that we can, along with Paul, say this phrase that we can view ourselves as the worst sinner. That we can be honest about ourselves, our shortcomings and our sins as we grow in love and appreciation and joy. And it will actually, as we do this, as we view ourselves in this way, as, as the man cried out, God have mercy on me, the sinner. That we view our sins as, as <laughs> like I, I sin less than you, so you're worse. We take a look and we view ourselves in this way. I, I am the worst sinner. That this will actually lead to an increase in joy and thanksgiving and appreciation. We find that there is an overflowing, never-ending supply of God's mercy. There's a story uh, long ago, a poor woman from the slums of London. And she was invited to go with a group of people for a, a holiday at the ocean. 
And she had never seen the ocean before. And, and when she saw it, she burst into tears. And those around her thought it was, it was kind of strange that, that she would cry at such a lovely holiday that had been given to her. And they asked her, why in the world are you crying? And pointing to the ocean, she answered, this is the only thing that I have ever seen that there was enough of. She says, God has oceans of mercy, and there is enough of it. God delights to show his mercy and compassion. And when we view ourselves as beggars in need of grace, and we see the ocean of God's mercy and grace, we respond appropriately. When we say, I am the worst sinner, we recognize the holiness of God and our, our evil things that we have done and, and the need for the grace that has continually been bestowed upon us. And I think the gospel is upside down in this sense because the more we feel our sinfulness, the more we feel our weakness, the stronger we actually are. The more you feel your sense of brokenness, the, the healthier you're going to be when you see yourself in Jesus, your true self. The more you feel your sense of need and dependence, the more joy and thanksgiving, the deeper your prayer life and experiences will be as you come and depend upon Christ alone. Jesus tells a story of a certain moneylender. And this moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 100 denarii, which would be like a denarii is a, a, a day's wage. So consider almost two years' salary. Picture that in your mind. Two years' salary. Another person owed him 50, two months. And both of these debtors could not pay the debt they owed. So the moneylender and his grace and his mercy, he, he absorbed the debt. He canceled the debt. And Jesus asked his disciples as he's telling this story, which will love the moneylender more? And the disciples answer and say, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus says this phrase, he who is forgiven little loves little. Because whose sins are many forgiven much, they will love much. Church family, I pray that as we consider that the king, the immortal, the, the one who deserves all glory and honor, stooped down to earth, sending his son, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, to save us simply by an act of sheer grace, that we would respond accordingly in thanks, in joy, in praise and adoration to Jesus. That we would not grow in a sense of being puffed up and pridefulness, but that we would descend into being lowly and humble and more and more realizing that we are in need of grace and God has been so gracious. The gospel is about, I am, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever thought before. Yet in Jesus, I am more loved and accepted than I ever could dare imagine. And This is the message that we herald, church. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. We are those sinners. We are in need of grace. And we respond now by saying, thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift of your word. The gift that has been preserved over the centuries to instruct us, to teach us the words that contain the life, the very words of God. Thank you that we have such teaching on, on the, the beauty and the glory and the grace of God. You, you are so gracious to us. We, we all might not have been like Paul 
in the sense of actively persecuting your church, but we, we, like Paul, are blasphemers and opponents. We were, at one point in time, ignorant and in unbelief. Yet, Father, you have showed grace to us. This grace has overflowed. You have given us the gifts of faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. And we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you have considered us faithful because of what Jesus has done. That faithless sinners like you and me can be forgiven and accepted and stand before a just and holy God and and worship you and have fellowship with you and, and have relationship and reconciliation with you. Father, may this, may this message be at the center of our, of our church. May this message live in our hearts in such a way that we don't grow tired of hearing it. As we recall it, we respond again and again in praise and thanks to Jesus. May our church be, may be a reflection of that as we sing to you, as we pray to you, as we worship you. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to be your witnesses here in this community, to be people who herald this this message, who don't move past this message. Thank you for the grace you have shown us in this this church, in the ways that we we have failed so greatly. We have missed the mark, yet you continue to show grace and mercy to us. So we humble ourselves before you and we say thank you, Jesus. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So help us to live as your humble servants. In Jesus' name, amen.